Hello. Hello, Jacob. Joey, how you doing, mate? <laughs> it's been a long time. It's it's good. Yeah. It's a very <clears throat> it's a very good time to do a podcast. This is the first podcast in a while, so welcome. Thank you for yeah, coming. It's been a long on. time for me too. It was like five minutes ago I realized I have a new computer. I had to put Skype on it. You sound pretty good. It sounds clear. Nice. Um, I what are we going to talk about? There's like there ha nothing that has been happening. Oh, so much. Um, I was probably I was probably in Colorado last one we did. I can't remember. Um, but I'm living in Park City, Utah now. Uh, which is is that like the the skiing capital of North America? Kind of. Uh, it, some people would say yes. Some people would say hell no. But um, there's uh, there's some great really big mountain spots on the other side of the range, on the Salt Lake side. Um, but the skiing on this side is a little bit tame as far as, you know, the steeps and the and the powder and that kind of thing is concerned. But there's a really good park community. Uh, they had some of the Winter Olympics events here. So it's pretty well set up for, uh, you know, the kind of skiing I want to do. I've, I've seen some of your videos over the last year. It, <laughs> It's been crazy, like, uh, seeing you try backflips, and you actually, I think you landed your first one, didn't you? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's, there's a few tricks I tried. Um, I wasn't really happy with the season, just because of the amount of work I've been doing. Like, th those those clips you saw, I was working, like, 100-hour weeks across about three or four jobs uh, when those went down, so... Oh. You never really get the conditions you want. You're kind of forced to just go and make the most of it when uh, when you can. Oh, sorry. But this coming winter will be a different story. Uh, I feel like I'm in a good position now to really, uh, you know, focus on getting some stuff done and uh, spending a lot of time on skis and on snow this winter. So I'm yeah, pretty excited about that. You definitely look more comfortable. Um, I just remember when I tried my first grind this year, just how badly my rollerblade habits bled into that first try. Yeah, and it still happens a little bit, you know? Like, I'm getting old, so it's kind of hard to learn what in your head you think is the same trick that requires a very different technique. Um, but you make it work, you know? And it's so much fun. Like, I feel like I'm 16 again on skates, you know? Everything's brand new with the skis. Uh, you can get that thrill of learning new stuff and pushing yourself a bit further than you thought you could go all over again. Whereas on skates, you know, it's kind of hit and miss for me to do that these days. Yeah, I wrote that thing, um, that post, it was kind of like the open letter to people who are coming back into the sport. And uh, one thing people forget about with skating is how it feels in your head when you're not doing it. it it's actually way harder when you get back into it than what you remember it feeling like. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny that you put it that way because uh, Frank Stoner said something to me once that really stuck. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not using his words, but uh, his point basically was that you don't know anything that you're not still doing or that you're not actively doing. Like if I did a fish brain, you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't stand here and look you in the eye now and say, yeah, I know how to do fish brains. Because you'd be like, well, you, you did, but if you haven't been doing them for like 10 years, you really don't know how to do them anymore. Oh, well, I'm so, there's definitely a lot of people. So if, you, if you had to do one again, you would probably have to relearn it to some degree because 
the knowledge that you think you still have is gone. Like you, you haven't been doing it, so you actually don't know how to do it. <laughs> There's definitely and, uh, a lot of people. That, oh, that definitely ahead. applies in a big way to a lot of the way that we skaters think of ourselves and what we do these days. You know, a lot of it's in the past. A lot of it happened a long time ago, and. You know, we all like to think we were pretty good back then, and that maybe we could still do those things. But if you're not if you're not out there actually doing them, you don't know. There, there's a large uh, amount of people online uh, that you would disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for the heads up, Joey. Let me write this down so I don't forget it. There's a lot of uh, uh, it's it's crazy. Well, there's just so many people. Um, I think there's a slow influx of people that either they have more time to skate or they want to get the feeling again. And it, there's this um, yeah, there's some new old blood coming in. And uh, I think a lot of people forget that that if they haven't done a fish brain in ten years, it's it's actually really hard to do one now. Yeah. Not and only I do that, have to but say, I, like the you know, the prevailing style of skating that people do, it's very technical. And, you know, the vocabulary and the way that those tricks build on each other is very intricate. And, you know, some people are going to lose that very quickly. It might only take six months. It might only take a year. And, you know, they can't do their trick progression in the same way they used to, you know. So um, does that segue into anything that you wanted to talk about specifically at the start i feel like it does uh yeah a little bit um a lot of what i've been seeing and reading and thinking about lately in skating has given me a a kind of theme a kind of an idea that i can see brewing here and that is the difference between actually doing something versus presenting an image of doing something and i'm applying this to things like rollerblading, things like skateboarding, things like action sports in general. Um, and it probably goes a little further into a lot of the subcultures that are marketed to teenagers and that are marketed to young adults these days. It seems like there's a much stronger focus on being able to present the image that you're a surfer or a skater or, uh, you know, whatever, rather than actually giving you what you need to do it and getting you started and sending you on your way. Sport as fashion. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you posted that article about the skateboarders who are up in arms because, you know, the fashion world is, you know, appropriating their culture and appropriating their, you know, everything they worked hard to rip off other cultures like surfing and rock and roll and riding motorbikes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was really funny that in 2016, you know, they were whining about how the, the fashion is taking over. I'm like, hang on a second. Hasn't that been happening for like 20 years in skateboarding? <laughs> and, just for the, and just for the fun of it, I go and I Google uh, DC, uh, the company, DC Shoes. And, you know, when you Google something, there's that little like two-line description yeah. that tells you what to expect from the link. Let me read this to you. Enter the world of DC shoes and discover the latest in skate and snowboard fashion and accessories. <laughs> they never made a deck, bro. They never made trucks. They never made wheels. 
Yeah, I get, I get that you, you use the shoes and you need the shoes, right? But a lot of kids just bought those to go to school with as well, you know? No. Presenting, no. The, presenting the image of I'm a skateboarder. DC was selling that forever ago. So now, you know, there's models on the runway wearing Thrasher shirts or whatever, and they're whining. And I'm like, hang on a second. DC sold for like $87 million. That's a skateboard clothing company sold for $87 million. Don't tell me they didn't know what they were doing way back then, you know? That that brand has definitely devolved into, at least up in Kamloops, it's very far away from skateboarding and snowboarding here. It's Oh, yeah? It's borderline, like, blue-collar... Uh, like people who, who hunt and drive DC trucks. to a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> You've got your tie and your button-down shirt and your your DC shoes on. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's definitely kind of become like you could see it in Walmart eventually. I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of the progression that I'm talking about, like. You know, if, if you were a kid in the 50s, let's say, if you were a kid in the 50s and you wanted to get into surfing, you would need to live right near a beach and you would need to have a surfboard. And at some point, you know, the culture turned to where it was kind of cool to just walk around in a pair of board shorts and live wherever and present that image, you know, of being a surfer or of being in some way connected to surf culture, which you're obviously not if you live in you know, Utah, for example, you're obviously, you're obviously not a core surfer. And then I guess a similar thing happened with like rock and roll, you know, way back then, if you were into rock and roll, like you, you asked your mom and dad to buy you a guitar, you know, or a drum set. And you invited the kids in your neighborhood that had instruments to come over to your garage and make a whole bunch of noise. Whereas now, like you just, you just own an iPod. Now you just you just buy MP3s, you know. You just I don't even know. I don't I don't I don't even know how the kids do it these days. But you can you can be into rock and roll, and never have picked up an instrument, never have sang a word, not know how to read music, etc. 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 And I mean, skateboarding's definitely gone the same way, where the the culture and the image of being a skater has actually overtaken the action of it and the activity of getting out there and doing it. And that's what the core guys are really upset about, is that it's not about ollies and kickflips and, you know, cruising down the hill and learning tricks anymore. It's about people who think they know but don't. People who want to talk about Tony Hawk and 900s all day and stuff like that. It's definitely reminding me of the ASA days of skating. Um, Like how I posted that, the Senate rebranding, um, the eight or seven or eight full page ads, uh, by a marketing agency with a team of people who could kill it in the park. That just that such an expensive rebranding of, of Senate, but it it was just a bunch of guys who were going to win all the competitions. And, uh, a lot of like the skateboard stuff is like that right now. All the money's going towards people who are just going to win competitions and the bubble will, it's already like, I don't, it's just being kind of, I don't want to use the word raped, but it feels like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, I mean, I guess maybe the people in the in the positions of power making the decisions. Um, you know, it, it's at that point in its life cycle. It's more about money these days than running a core company. But it's funny you brought that up about Senate. Um, I might be wrong about this. So anyone who's going to like soundbite selective quotation this uh, podcast, everyone else can remember that I said this. I might be wrong. I get the impression that that was right around the time that people at Bravo were saying to Arlo that they really didn't need his help anymore and they wanted to start driving the bus. Um, and I get the impression that that's pretty much what Supercomputer Robot was. Someone higher up at Bravo tapped Arlo on the shoulder and was like, look, you know, we've had a change of focus, a change of direction, and this is what we want you to do moving forward. And I get the impression he didn't want to do it, so he tried to make it look kind of as as cheesy and as lame as possible. I'm not talking about the skaters. I'm talking about the artwork and the name and the branding and such. He tried to make it look as cheesy as possible because he didn't want to do it. You know, SCR was kind of the antithesis of what Senate had been the whole time. But then when you posted that rebranding, that was basically SCR with Senate written on it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. It, and it was probably right around the time when, like I said, the guys upstairs were saying, you know, coffee's for closers. We don't, we don't really need your help anymore. <laughs> we've, 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 we've taken from you what we needed, and now we're, now we're good. Now we're going to run it ourselves. And of course, they they didn't run it themselves. They ran it into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even take that but, long. But that's what happens when you don't own your company. You know, someone else, the real owner, takes it from you. And they don't realize that they can't run it the way you did, and they wreck it. <laughs> well, they sold it early on, too. I, I was going yeah. through in Old Daily Bread, and uh, when they I, – I don't know if it was Angie. Somebody dropped in an Old Daily Bread that they sold it to Hyper pr- pretty early on. Yeah, well, I want to say – and again, this is guesswork. I want to say those rollerblade axles painted green was probably them – you know, the ones in the tobacco tins or whatever. Yeah. But, um, I mean, even when you watch, like, what is it? The end of uh, the hoax or close close to the end of the hoax when you've got, like, Brooke and Pat Parnell messing around on the mic while Arlo's trying to frontside that kink rail. Yeah. You can kind of tell that there it's just a crew, you know? Yeah, totally. Like like 4x4 was before uh, Rats Out, well, before Sunshine got involved, it was just a small, just a small group of guys. It was a crew. They wanted to be making things, but they just weren't in a position to do it, unless it was, you know, t-shirts maybe. And then, you know, the the businessman gets involved, the financial backer gets involved. So, yeah, looking at these old daily breads, it's amazing. I'm really happy. I went through a phase where I was going to either give them away, throw them out, or burn them. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I went out to the lake the last two weekends. I would just bring a stack of daily breads and drink beer and listen to music <laughs> and just flip through them for for uh, obsessive amounts of time to the point That's where That's living, right? <laughs> What's that? You know, you, you know you've made it when you've got time to go out to the lake, drink beer, and read through old daily breads. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> you have succeeded in life, Joey McGarry. It's what I do with my vacation time. But uh, my wife rolled her eyes when – She's like, uh, 
you've been doing that for a while or something. And I was like, it's, it's interesting to see how history recontextualizes itself or something. I said something so ridiculous, <laughs> but it's kind of what, when I, when I went back through them, it's amazing that I have a kind of a different lens, how I see a lot of this stuff. Uh-huh. So the interviews are different. The ads are different disinformation. It's amazing how much there's a lot of garbage for uh-huh. large stretches of time. But then the things that are really good and timeless stand out so much. Um, nice. Things like, uh, yeah, Angie Walt, just dear, just dear and forth, uh, 50-50, um, England, a lot of the early K2 ads, which were shot by like just Deerenforth, uh, his photography and, and yeah, 50, 50, strangely enough, I, I don't know. They just really started to stand out their, their yeah. ads, the photography, what they were trying to do. Um, and then, and then to see just how they kind of got put, like you go through later issues and 50, 50 just kind of gets pushed out slowly. Uh, yeah, they that uh, is it. Is it Blade Museum, the website where they did that uh, that page, that article? Amazing. They're actually, they're actually interviewing Jess. Yeah, it does put a lot of that stuff into perspective. I've got to say, Jess is probably one of, if not the most underrated guy that did the you know the behind the scenes industry stuff in the nineties. You know, he had an eye for talent. As far as the photography was concerned, it's amazing. It's timeless, like you say. And, you know, on the on the business side and on the hardware side, they were making all the right decisions. They were doing all the right things. Um, they just unfortunately created a market that they couldn't compete in because they didn't have the kind of capital behind them, you know, that Bravo did and that Sunshine did and that uh, Powerslide did. I forgot, like, they even made fucking aluminum H-blocks. There, there's an ad where I don't even remember seeing anybody skate those, but they made them. Really? Yeah. Was it was it the ad where Tim Ward was doing the underflip? There was, like, a bunch of pictures and products on the page, and, like, right underneath it may have been, like, Shima doing a sweats dance or something like that. Yeah. Um, there was this... Uh, what the hell would that have been for? For a rollerblade skater? I have no idea. Maybe razors. I don't even know. I, um, I don't and, even know. <laughs> and and then reading that that Frank uh, thing on BMEG, I've just realized how much amazing hardware just went completely over my head. Yeah. I, uh, I really enjoyed that uh, that article and some of the posts that he put up about that today. That... Um, yeah, it's been probably the biggest problem. Even you hear Tom Heiser talk about physics and people learn that it's not, I don't know, the technology, if there's a ground control uh, anti-rocker frame in, in a cool color for however much cheaper, it's like yeah. people, I mean, I, now I could, though. I could go either way on physics, to tell you the truth. Part, part of me wants to think that it's all the kids' fault because they didn't understand the virtue Part of me thinks that some of the details could have been better. So, I think there was a version too that he apparently figured out that could have been simpler. Yeah, like educating but the I, shops and all the parts for that thing. But probably. I totally understand him being in the same position as Jess and Fifty Fifty as far as how do you compete? You know, like, and this is the difference between like a frame brand and a frame company. 
you know, with, with something like Kaiser or Ground Control, where it's just a brand, it's just a label that's on frames made by a much bigger company that has, you know, a much bigger bottom line, how, how, do, you, how do you compete? And I basically said the same thing to Frank, you know, I think that there was marketing and that there was uh, an effort to inform the, the consumers in blading as to why they should be buying certain products over others because of, you know, superior performance. But it just kind of got drowned out by the kind of marketing that Senate was putting out, and especially given how much of it they could put out because of the money they had, you know? Yeah, it, it it's, was weird watching like this, um, maybe like late ninety, late nineties was like golden era, early two thousands. The the magazines were amazing. So many great products were getting put, and then it was just this weird, kind of like slowly petering out of all this momentum, and uh, it turned into like. <laughs> the mid 2000s to later I did that Instagram video where like I was flipping pages of daily bread uh, jump on slide down jump on slide down jump on slide down jump on slide down the pictures all look the same the skaters all look the same the photography all look the same you would go through like the product guide and it was just whatever was kind of popular in design at that time there was a point in skating where like all the products on the main page of a skate shop was just fucking like gray and like mind game owned the color scheme of rollerblading for a while. (laughs) And just, just a lot of like bad stuff being made. And there was like little things that shone through here and there, but there was just this period that I didn't appreciate as much until I looked back of and how, um, I don't even know if it was the photography or the products or it seemed like skating was more open at a specific point in time. And then it just started to like close in and all this momentum started to kind of leave it. And I don't know what that is, but uh, it's better now. (laughs) If uh, again, if I had to guess, I think that what you were seeing in the early two thousands was kind of the, the very final death throes of Senate having gone down in, let's say, 98, right? Yeah. Because there was, you know, a huge amount of money and a huge amount of marketing and energy, you know, a really big push behind what everyone was doing at that time. There was probably a lot of infighting going on in the industry and in like the, you know, the the pro community or the, the Southern California community at the time. I don't think everyone was on the same page as far as how they wanted it to work out. But there was a lot of money being thrown around, and there were a lot of people who were driving the bus, so to speak. They were the ones who had either appointed themselves or been risen up to the top to uh, you know, to be the ones who determined what direction it was going to go in, what was cool, what wasn't, what we were going to become down the road. And then you get to the early 2000s, and there just wasn't the money left for anyone to really be doing that, or at least not doing it with a whole lot of authority you know and that's okay it was a great time for us to reflect and look on well i mean where do we go from here what do we really have what can we make of what we have left um i agree with you that now is the most exciting time that i have seen in skating in a very long time um styles are so diverse compared to what they were like you were saying mid 2000s you know late 
2000s. Uh, the products that are available, you know, the innovations that people are considering, that people are working on. Everyone's so much more open to skating flat or skating bigger wheels. It's bringing back a lot of uh, um, a lot of styles and a lot of um, possibilities that our community kind of let go of for a long time. So I'm stoked. Like every morning I get up, I'm excited, you know, to turn the computer on and see what's new. Me too. Because it, it's more amazing now than I remember it being in a very long time. Yeah. And that kind of brings it to, I, I was so hyped on this, um, this Nitro World Games thing. I was sharing the fuck out of every post <laughs> I could find, and uh, I, I don't know. I just felt this momentum. I, I'm a Grom still at heart. That'll probably be on my gravestone. He was a Grom. Um, <laughs> so I get excited about these things. and Almost landed it on your, on your tombstone. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's probably going to be on mine too. <laughs> um, so I was sharing all these posts, and then there was uh, at 24 hours or a little over 24 hours, there was the, the post that it wasn't going to be live. And I didn't... Uh -huh. I felt kind of dumb doing all that promotion leading up to it and knowing it wasn't, I, I had to delete a post on my own personal page going out to, to just friends and people who didn't rollerblade being like, I'm so excited to watch rollerblading yeah, live yeah. on TV, 8 PM, like just my excited way. And then I had to delete that finding out it wasn't going to be live on TV, but that, that didn't like, that didn't matter too much. I wasn't overly angry. I started to think about logically a three hour time slot. You're not going to be able to fit. There's a lot of sports, even like triple jump and people having to do those runs. Um, however many commercial breaks you need to do. So, and then I wasn't really angry about anything. I knew we weren't going to see footage right away, but it was when I saw the, uh, the highlight reel, like after the fact, I started to feel really weird about like they made the highlight reel after celebrating all the first place and then there was no inliner or scooter. And I'm not like mad, but I just started to think about like, what is going on? Because did we all assume that it was part of the whole thing? Obviously, NBC has a say, but that, that extra highlight reel was really bizarre that it wasn't included. Maybe that was part of the NBC contract. I don't know. So, what is your take on all of this? I mean, right. it's such well, a big topic. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to throw a few disclaimers in along the way just so that people understand what I mean by what I'm saying. Um, but we'll start with uh, what you were saying about the TV. I'm not that upset that it's not on television because I don't really share, I don't really ascribe to that attitude in rollerblading that that what we have is undeniably badass, and if only the world could see it, that they would realize instantly, and they would know that they were wrong and that we're cool just like all the other sports. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we've got a lot of work to do before we belong there or before it's even going to do us any good, you know. So I'm not necessarily of that attitude, so I'm not too offended that it didn't end up on TV. My question would be, 
who made the call and when did the different companies, the different groups of people know about it? Because as far as this event's concerned, you know, you've got you've got the Nitro Circus company and they've been putting on shows like this for a while. They run a really tight ship. They know how long a show lasts. They know who needs to drop in when. You know, they do this at venues all around the world. They know how to run the show and not run over time. Right? So I'm sure it was quite a long time ago that they knew exactly how much airtime they had in between TV breaks and commercial breaks and stuff like that. What I imagine would have happened is that someone from NBC, and this might have only happened, you know, in the last few days, in the last week, someone from NBC basically called up someone from Nitro on the phone and was like, look, we haven't had much luck selling uh, ad space during the, the rollerblade part and during the scooter part. You know, I don't even know what companies would buy ad space for Nitro Circus, but whatever companies they are, they have people working for them who are getting them the biggest value for their money. And, you know, the whole action sports thing, it's not new anymore. Everyone's pretty savvy to it. So all of these companies, you know, Mountain Dew or whoever who wants who want to advertise, they've got someone, you know, lobbying for them, campaigning for them with NBC saying, all right, the moment Tony Hawk lands the 900, we want you to cut to a commercial and we want it to be our commercial. None of them want to be on during the rollerblading section. None of them want to be on during the scooter section because they get that that is a waste of their money. They're not getting their value. They're not going to be selling whatever that's just the way they think you know we need to we need to understand that rollerblading in popular culture is aids uh, you know you can't use it to sell stuff you can't use it to sell mountain dew so nbc might have done the best they could and been like look we haven't been able to sell the ad space so if something needs to get cut that's what gets cut from the broadcast the rollerblading and the scootering because no one wanted to advertise there so that part kind of makes sense to me. Um, you know, the guy that runs Nitro, uh, the Australian guy, Mike, someone, Mike, someone or other. Pora. Yeah, him and him and uh, Travis, Travis Pastrana. You know, I don't have much trouble believing what they're saying and the way that they present themselves. You know, and it's a huge opportunity, as we all know. It's a huge opportunity for us to have you know, the chance to, to get up there and to roll down these ramps and hit them and, and do what we can and see how far we can take it. So I, I don't picture them as the types who would, you know, lead, lead the skaters on that were involved. And then at the 11th hour, be like, Oh, and by the way, we decided to cut you from the, from the TV broadcast. I really don't think that was their call. I might be wrong. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. It, it does raise that bigger issue of let's not look at the world and look at everyone else and accuse them of being the, the thing that's holding us back. Let's look at ourselves. You know, if, if it went down the way I just suggested where NBC were like, look, we couldn't, we couldn't sell commercial space, so if something needs to get cut, that's it. You know, it puts Mike and it puts uh, Travis in a position where they're like, well, you know, we really need to listen to this because if we're going to work with NBC long term into the future, it's got to be a relationship that works for them, too. And 
let's face the facts, most of the people that came here tonight came here to see motocross bikes 80 feet in the air. They didn't, they didn't come here to see the rollerbladers. They didn't come here to see the scooter riders. So there's, there's more we have to bring to the table if it's going to, if it's going to level up, you know? Yeah, that's true. And then when you think of, we've been doing that for a long time, man, we've been blaming everyone and everything for, for rollerblading, not being on the map, you know, but like I can take a look in the mirror and find a bunch of ways that, that I can be a better skater. So, and, uh, it makes sense. The idea of like, uh, packaging up, a highlight show or something like that where scooter and inline are in and, and I don't know, beefing it up somehow with extra stories or production and, uh, then trying to get ad space for that. I can I mean, see that. I mean, in, well, give me, give me a second to try and find the right way to say this. <laughs> okay. I think it was probably the best and the worst thing that ever happened to rollerblading that we were in the first X games in 95 because it was this huge opportunity for us to be seen on the same level as these other sports, these other activities that had been developing over decades. And yet we weren't, we weren't ready for it. You know, it's like, it's like trying to go out to a nightclub, you know, with a bunch of dudes when you're like 11, it's just not, it's just not going to work out for reasons that you're not even aware of yet. And I think that was definitely the case for a lot of the guys that were at the first X Games. They kind of dropped the ball or they kind of made enemies in ways that they really weren't expecting to happen. So in the long run, it didn't work out with the X Games, but it probably has a lot to do with the way things formed in the very beginning, in that very first uh, first year, in like 95. So... Um, you know, part of me is upset that Arlo, in the position that he was, you know, didn't stand up and didn't fight a little harder. But maybe it wouldn't have done any good. And now it seems like Bladers are part of a company, part of an organization that does want them involved and that does want to present them at the same level. But if we're still not there, then no one else is going to change that for us, you know? No one's going to fix that but us. So that's something that I'd like to talk a lot more about in this podcast, and hopefully it'll come out in the most constructive way possible. What things can we do to level up? What things can we do to present ourselves in an opportunity like this so that we're not the ones that get cut from the broadcast? And uh, what I think... A side note to that, I do think it worked out really well in the end that it was five guys um, that all could hit the ramp, that uh, maybe if the live broadcast happened, um, maybe this wasn't the best year for it. Maybe this was the best year for this to happen, and maybe a little bit of momentum leading into next year could create a better live broadcast. Or... I don't know, set, um, qualifiers or, um, I don't know, maybe other people can skate yeah. the ramp or I, <laughs> well, no, I, I totally agree with that, but I would also look at it both ways, right? 
if if you want to look at the event that just went down as being a dry run, you know, kind of like an audition as to whether or not we deserve to be there in the future, that could go either way. We could make that a yes or we could make that a no. And um, there's parts of it that I think were done very well and that did come together very well under the circumstances, under the ways in which it had been organized and the way that it, uh, you know, that it all pieced together. It could have gone a lot worse than it did. Uh, no, but let's, let's look for ways that it could have gone better than it did. And if we do get another chance, then we're bringing it better than we did, you know? So did you watch, uh, actually, the, yeah, the Erod, the practice clips, Erod just released an edit, and then I think uh, the Shredweiser guy is going to be releasing something. So at, at least we got to see something. So you saw a little bit of the competition. Um, what were your thoughts watching that stuff? Yeah, I saw some of it, and there was a guy uh, here in Utah. Um, there's, like a, there's like a camping trip that the Utah – local dudes put on every year well one of them organizes the whole thing hazen but um you know it's a pretty sweet deal they come up to like summit county and do a bunch of camping by the lake and drink a whole lot of beer and skate some parks skate a little street so i went to that on sunday and i got to see some clips that a guy had on his phone he had been to the show and i did get to see that edit this afternoon that you were talking about uh eric rodriguez so i have an idea of what got done um <laughs> yes you, you know i'm a big fan of like late 90s park skating right i got i got pretty lucky to be spending some time at woodward and to be spending some time traveling around to the asa contests when some incredibly talented skaters were throwing down just unbelievable things and the hard part of that was at the same time that they were doing all of this, they were kind of fighting against this prevailing attitude in the uh, in the industry that the core companies mattered and that real street skaters mattered, quote unquote, real street skaters mattered, and that anyone who was sponsored by you know K2 or Solomon, and you know they were ASA Pro but they didn't have you know street sections in in videos in team videos, it was kind of irrelevant. What, what they could do. So a lot of those guys went under the radar to the point where they just couldn't make any money. They couldn't make a living. You know, they couldn't make enough, you know, to cover the plane tickets or to cover the expenses to get around and do these things. So what I'm about to say is based on the fact that I got to experience maybe two dozen insanely talented pro-level park skaters doing the most incredible things on a, on a regular basis. And I don't really see that style of skating being represented much in this event. And it's kind of weird, the, the five guys that ended up on the ramp, because it, it works out pretty closely to what I was saying about the attitude way back then. You had to come from the core company you had to be primarily a real street skater. You had to have a certain history in order to be appointed, you know, by the rollerblading community as a whole, as someone who could step up and represent them. 
and yet not necessarily the best skater for the job. So that's something that kind of got glossed over in this event as far as I'm concerned. I can imagine a whole lot of people who could have been there, maybe wanted to be there, and weren't really given the opportunity and who made that call. I I think my I don't know for sure. My assumption is that Haffy would kind of Chris would would act as kind of like the talent scout and pick people that he knows and also edits rep like you you see uh, Wake um, Roman and Lang CJ didn't have any edits but he did get an invite to try the ramp when when they were in Australia and everyone else had edits so it's like it's almost like edits were currency for for maybe Haffy to or Chris <laughs> Chris to uh, show this stuff to his boss or whoever represents um, and the only other person I could think of what are you laughing at? Nothing. <laughs> um, the the others that popped into my head, I have I think I have five, maybe four. Jer- Jaron Grobe, if that's how you say his name, he's absolutely yeah. I, I think it's pronounced Grobe. Grobe, yeah. absolutely killing it uh, in those shows, skating what looks like almost every day. Um, he would have been good. Julian Cudeau. Um, the Yasutokos, and I think I'm missing a fifth. They're like, there's at least probably five or six ASA wild cards from back in the day. I know that. Um, is it Nell Martin? Oh, uh-huh, yeah, I've seen I've seen some uh, like vert clips of him lately. Nell Martin and um, even Randy Marino has strapped him back on recently. Um, he was the yeah, guy he, in that ASA best trick show who did that, uh, he did the loop and he also yeah. did that, uh, the trick that Lang did. He did that way back when. Was it, was it him who did that or was it Ryan Dawes? Oh shit. Ryan Dawes. Yeah. Ryan Dawes did the misty but, to backflip or whatever. But yeah. Um, oh dude, I'm so bad with names. What was the name you just said? Randy Marino. Randy Marino. I think he was the first one to do the loop. I know they had maybe half a dozen guys hitting it. I want to say he was the first one to pull it all the way around. Yeah, he was. That's why uh, that that K2 ad I posted the day after uh, 4th of July. And I remember skating with him a little bit, like back in those days, kind of late 90s time. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to describe. Uh, He just had a certain talent for being able to cover every base and literally skate a little bit of everything without necessarily getting clips for anything in like videos or magazines. Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) There was a lot of guys like that. (laughs) I hope that doesn't sound like a negative thing. You could put Randy Marino on anything and he could skate it and he could rip, but you might not end up with like one of those Jess Darren fourth shots for the magazine. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So it's weird. You you would show up at one of these places where all these guys were going to be. And you had watched the videos, you had watched the magazines, you thought you had a pretty good idea of who was who and who wasn't. And then you get to see it up close and personal and it's totally different, you know? Guys who you hadn't thought much of would just blow your mind. And guys that you had thought a whole bunch of, you get a close look at them and they've got like five tricks, you know? Marketing. 
Good Dude, marketing. Corey Donahoe was insanely good. Really? Insanely good. That's ah shit. I haven't thought of that name in a long time. The the first thing I think of is the VG8 540 cigarette still in my mouth. He sketches up to a natural street launch. He, yeah, his section didn't really stand out in that video. Uh, some 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 guys skating it just doesn't come across in the videos and the magazines i want to say i want to say Corey was pretty close with dave Payne. now that wasn't that wasn't why he got a section or why he was in vg videos he was in them because he was insanely good i need to revisit it now um oh man you remember that section i sent you recently where Josh Petty does the uh, the Illusion Five? Yes. He's got like a like a two Corey's got like a two seventy topsole on a square edge in that edit. Oh and yeah. You watch, and you watch it and you're like, damn, I just don't see tricks like that anymore. I know what you're saying. I no, no one no one does that trick on that kind of obstacle anymore. Yeah. Well that that actually popped up quite a bit in my head while I was looking at um, the old daily breads and it was like is it the way it was filmed or the skates or the way the photo was or is it it is actually nobody does stuff like that anymore or is it his what skates was well, he a k2 guy i can't remember yeah i want to say they were like maybe style points bob or something okay. like that I don't yeah know. but Top um all right let me try and bring this back to yeah to sorry <laughs> um i I tried to put some ideas down so I wouldn't get too lost while we were talking. So let me see if I can get through some of these. Um, all right. So to start with, I'm going to give you the five things that I did not like about the way Nitro went down. And then after I've done that, I'm going to give you five things about how I think it could be done better in future. So they're related, you know. On one hand, I'll give you what I didn't like about it, and then later on I can talk about maybe this is how it could be done better in future. Okay, so the first thing that I really didn't like about it is Nitro Circus has been doing their thing for a while now, like five years, I think. Right? They travel around. They sell out stadiums. Everyone buys a ticket knowing that they're going to go and see, you know, thrills and spills and that kind of stuff. So in some ways, it's a bit of a NASCAR crowd that shows up. You know, it's a bit of a a monster truck crowd that shows up. But that's all well and good as long as it's promoted for what it is. You know, you're going to the circus. You know what to expect. Totally understood. And I haven't really had any problem at all with what Chris has been doing with Nitro all this time. Right? Great opportunity for him. Great opportunity for rollerblading as a whole. You know, have at it. But it's very different the way that they've presented this event because they've tried to step out of, you know, the arena where they're a circus. And they've tried to step into the same ballpark as things like the X Games and things like the Olympics. You know, there's a lot of talk that's been going down in their media and in their presentation about how the X Games has lost its way and it doesn't really represent you know, the athletes or the best way to package and present what the athletes do to the public and that Nitro World Games is going to be the answer to that. 
you know, we're going to be the new X Games is the way that it's been presented in the in the media. And to top that off, an organization that's based in California and the vast majority of their athletes are based in California as well, decides that they're going to have the first event not only in Utah, but in the same stadium where the opening ceremony for the Winter Olympics was held. So they're really trying to re re-image themselves as this is a legitimate sporting competition. This is the world games. The person who wins is the world champion. And, you know, they make a big deal about, and this was especially, let's say, six or seven months ago, I think, like late last year, they made a really big deal about how anyone was going to be allowed to enter. And that was the part that really got me interested, that really got me excited, because it sounds like a great opportunity to get a whole bunch of skaters together that haven't really been in the in the limelight or even in the you know the the eye of the rollerblading community for quite a long time, pull some stuff out of the bag that they that they've still got or that they've maybe learnt, and put on a show that you know modern era bladers haven't really seen like i got to see it in the late 90s but there's a you know there's a whole generation of rollerbladers that haven't seen the kind of stuff that was going down then and maybe don't understand what really is possible so i was hoping it would go that way um you know it really didn't go that way the closer we got to d-day the more it looked like it wasn't really a legitimate contest it wasn't really a legitimate sporting event it was just an extension of the circus and it really seems to me like what they're doing with the five guys that got uh that got chosen is just try and audition dudes for the circus i mean if chris is doing the whole thing i i know that wake's part of it as well i'm not sure if he's on the tour a whole lot i don't know but if chris is doing the whole thing he doesn't want to be in europe for what three months at a time you know, he, does, he doesn't want to not come home for like a six-month stretch. And then when you're home, you're home for a week and you have to go again. So, you know, let, let's find a guy in Europe to do the Europe part of the tour. Let's find a guy in Australia to do the Australia part of the tour. And just my opinion, it seems to me like they're auditioning dudes to be in the circus events in these, you know, regional areas, these international areas. Um and, you know, maybe they wanted to get more people involved and that changed as things progress. I don't know. But, you know, come the day, it didn't happen. Like you said, a guy like Jaron Grob wanted to be a part of it, would have killed it, doesn't get the chance. Yeah. Um, that It seemed more like a showcase almost to me. Like yeah, a, well, like a, like a mini showcase for the sport, which I mean, kind of doubles as yeah, like a like trying. They, out they the don't mini. need to do that though. Like it, it's 2016. You don't need to introduce to the general public what a guy can do on a motocross bike. You know what I mean? Like they've they've seen it. They know it, and it's it's still pretty much the same with us in blading. I know we're not as in the public eye as motocross, but people still have a pretty good idea of what we can do. You know, we come down a ramp, we hit a ramp, we flip and spin around in the air. Hopefully we land and roll away. 
and people were entertained watching it. That's I don't really feel like the the general public needs a primer, and especially since Nitro has been doing this very same thing, you know, like we said, for five years. So if they're if they're trying to move into a position where it's considered a legitimate sporting event that's going to rival, you know, X Games, I I kind of get the impression that they don't understand what it's going to take just yet. It's going to take something different than what they do in the circus. And I'm not knocking the circus. I'm saying that's where their strength is. That's where their their talent and their experience is. That live show they put on is obviously amazing because they're, you know, this insanely fast-growing company in the U.S. because they've found a better way to present what can be done on on these, you know, on these toys beneath our feet. They've they've found a better way of packaging it up and showing it to people, and people pay for it and they love it. Um, but as far as an actual like like competition, you know, like like quote unquote games, world games, uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's like it's there yet. So it was too close to what the show, the Nitro Circus show was, and by saying. That you're the well, new X Games, it it, I can see what was, you're saying. It was all in the way that it was marketed. Like I saw this slogan of theirs. This got posted on like a, a Facebook page or something. I saw this slogan of theirs where they're like, "Oh, it's not about your name; it's about your talent." And I'm like, "It's not about your name." That would explain why, like, the first dude that got tapped was Travis Pastrana, and then. They go and tap Tony Hawk to do the commentary for the skateboarding. Now, this this part really rubbed me the wrong way because if you look at the skateboarding event, they've basically got a big air ramp set up without a quarter pipe at the end of it, right? Yeah. Now, Tony Hawk has unquestionably been the the appointed golden boy of skateboarding for as long as anyone can remember. Like, like I was a kid when that guy was the golden boy of skateboarding, right? We're talking like animal chin. We're talking like mid eighties. <laughs> and, and he was being pushed by, you know, at least part of the skateboarding industry, if not all of it as, you know, the golden boy who was going to present skateboarding to the public way back then, 30 years ago. And in his shadow, pretty much all of that time was Danny Way. And it did not matter that whole time what Danny Way did on a skateboard. He was never number one. He never broke out of that shadow. And it was no fault of his own. Because if you've seen what Danny Way can do on a skateboard, it's... So... So they, they throw up this event. They bring in a ramp for a style of skating that, as far as I can tell, Tony Hawk's never really done. I mean, you know, he skated a lot of street back in the day. You can maybe see a clip here and there of him hitting, like, you know, a 30- or a 40-foot gap. But Tony never really threw down in the big air contest, in the mega ramp, the way that Danny did, the way that Bob Burnquist did, the way that a bunch of guys have done. And yet he somehow tapped to do the commentary for that event. Now, if it's not about your name and it's about your talent, why are they tapping Tony? 
why are they not why are they not getting Danny Way to come and do it? Why are they not getting Bob Burnquist to come and do it? Right? They get a guy who has a huge name in skateboarding who has spent barely any time throwing himself over a 40, 50, 60 foot gap. Doesn't you know, it wouldn't have been a problem if they had just continued calling it the circus. But they're trying to present this as this legitimate sporting contest. You know? It it seemed like when, a oh go when ahead. They made, when they made it clear they weren't going to be qualifiers for the blading, it didn't change the marketing in any way. They were still talking about the five dudes as being finalists, as though there'd been some process by which they had earned the right to be there. You know, they were still talking about the road to Nitro. There was no road. They just teleported those five dudes straight to the event. <laughs> there, there was no road. There was no way for anyone else to get there. You know, they refer to the event as, as finals. Oh, these are the finals going down. When were the when was the the prelims? When was the not finals? <laughs> there was, and there yet was... you listen you listen to the marketing. If you go through some of the videos and you go through some of the web pages, they're presenting it in exactly that way to the general public. You know, we scoured the earth to find the very best. Blah blah blah. And I mean, paying any attention to like the you know, the online comments and stuff, it was obvious that Jaron had no idea how to become one of those five. It was obvious that no one even gave him a call or sent him an email or gave him any opportunity to be one of those five. What do you think? So weird. Oh, go ahead. You can scroll down one of the pages. Let me just find this one. Okay, you can scroll down one of the, the pages of the, the Nitro inline deal where they're talking about the, the global qualification. And they say, this event will be closed entry only to ensure the safety of all participating athletes. Ah, I never okay. saw that. Now, just, just think about this for a minute. To ensure the safety of people like Jaron, they're not going to let him compete. If you know anything at all about Nitro Circus, dude, their whole business model is uninsuring the safety of people. Every dollar they make is because people are in danger of breaking their necks, setting themselves on fire, killing themselves, etc., etc., etc. Right? The five dudes that they had compete in the event, one of them got a bad concussion like a few days ago or a week ago, and they didn't have a problem with him competing. And another one of them got a concussion a while back where the doctor told him if he hit his head, he might die. But we're going to go and tell Jaron Grob, Grob, sorry, we're going to go and tell Jaron Grob, who's probably been doing three shows a day for like 20 years promoting rollerblading who who has got more experience and more talent presenting rollerblading to the general public than jaron grove isn't he from the place where it was held too 
Park Uh Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's like here year round. I think he does shows all over. But like this guy knows how to put on a show for the general public, you know, for the audience that's going to show up at a Nitro event. This guy knows how to present himself, how to present skating, and how to send it. Who knows how to send it better than that guy? I, I wonder if it just comes down to him not having mega ramp footage or uh, something close to mega ramp. I wonder if they, I wonder if there was just some apprehension from um, uh, Travis and the Mike dude where they really needed to know, like, is there enough people? Because you and I could name a bunch of people that we think could, but in their minds, was there enough? Was there enough proof? Well, like, I, I don't know. How would you even convince your, your boss? I want to say, I want to say the guy that runs it, Mike, I want to say that he's far enough removed from these sports that he doesn't know he's going to let someone else make that call. Um, I heard the guy was a pretty big uh, surf lifesaver in Australia. Like he's been a, he's been a competitive surf lifesaver forever and he won a bunch of competitions and he won a bunch of money. I'm paraphrasing. I don't really know, but um, you know, at some point decided that he was going to use all that money and use what he had to become an action sports promoter. But he really needs he really needs to tap people like Travis and like Chris to do a lot of this for him is the impression that I get. I, I don't think that he'd be the one making the final call. I might be wrong. Um, it's more likely to come down to the fact that the people that were involved to make the call, they all come from a very tight community in Southern California. They live in this little bubble where they think they still own rollerblading and they think they still call the shots and make it what it is. And uh, in their minds, Jaron just wasn't, just wasn't, he didn't fit with their their idea of how it was supposed to be presented. I might be wrong. Yeah, I, the way the way he was the way he was commenting, it sounds to me like he really wanted to be there. Yeah, it did. But that he wasn't going to say anything that would prevent him being there in future. Yeah, so you or what you're saying is he could be there in the future. Uh, he he doesn't want to jeopardize that. Yeah, this is all guesswork. Please, he was on the cover I, of Aggressive I mean, Indian Line. I don't mean to be putting words into the guy's mouth. Yes, right. Yeah. But I'm just saying the impression I got is that he really wanted to be there. But if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, if the opportunity comes up next year, you're going to be out of contention, out of consideration. I mean, is it, is it obvious to you that that's kind of how this has gone down? The five guys who got there got there because of who they know? It's, it seems like uh, – I don't know what, what the backstory is, but it just seems like if your boss asks you for some names, it would be who you know in your circle. And the picks represented that and the, the judges and everything represented that. And it's just kind of like – um, this first run where a decent amount of power to pick was uh, one person probably. And then they were just trusted to pick those people. And that's kind of what we got. And I think the qualifier thing would have helped change that. Um, so, yeah, what we got was kind of this uh, unit that was presented. And it's not bad at all. It's just uh, that was... That was how the people were chosen. 
I don't. Yeah. I don't know if um, I. Know. It, it it was just like uh, it was too crazy, probably to Chris or whoever to um, yeah the idea of old ASA dudes coming out. It's almost like unbelievable that it would even happen, but with the right promotion and word spreading, it definitely could have happened. But well, I just. people are going to take what I just said the wrong way and think that I'm hating on the five guys that were in the event. Um, The five guys that were in the event held it down. To think that there's no one else out there that could hold it down at the same level and maybe higher, I think that's really naive, though. And I did hear a little bit of that through, you know, the social media on the way into this event. Everyone was quite happy with the five dudes that got picked, and a lot of people were of the opinion of, well, who else could even skate the ramp at that level? And I'm like, well, you know, I could name half a dozen dudes from France. I could name half a dozen dudes from the UK. I could probably name a dozen or two dudes from the US. Some of them might have uh, fallen by the wayside and not really skate at all anymore. I, I don't know, but I'm just saying there's... There's a really big potential list out there. And the way that Nitro presents themselves, if they really don't care about people's names and people's, you know, sponsorship, people's clicks, where they're from and who they know, then why wouldn't they want to get those people on the ramp? Like, if you're going to drop that much money building a setup like this, why, why wouldn't you want the people on the ramp that can send it the furthest? I wonder, and, oh. and you're not going to know that without actually having the competition. I think this is the part that really rubs me the wrong way, is that it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy where people are like, well, just choose the best five in the world, and when the competition goes down, we'll know that they're the best because no one else did better tricks than them. <laughs> and no one else got a chance. Like you're saying... You're saying Jaron doesn't have, you know, big air ramp footage or mega ramp footage. I could probably pull some stuff out from the late 90s that's pretty close. I mean, I know I know that Nitro wanted to call the setup that we were on, that the Bladers were on, the Giganta ramp. <laughs> to make it bigger than the Mega? I don't, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but I mean, it wasn't all that Giganta, right? If you take, if you take a look at some of the shots... The guys are coming off a launch where the gap to the, you know, to the platform, to the apron, whatever you want to call it, the actual gap where the distance they would have to clear to be landing on the, you know, on the flat before the down ramp, it looks like it's about 12 feet, right? And even in the, even in the way they promoted the event, Nitro was saying that the distance was, for the long one, which I think all the guys hit, the distance was 50 feet to halfway down the landing. So not to the knuckle, it was 50 feet. Not like 50 feet to, to the edge of the apron or, or you die. 50 feet to like where CJ landed, you know, the cork 12. <laughs> you know, the thug zone was 50 feet. Not, not, not the knuckle and not, oh, my God, how much gap do I have to clear to not die? How big was that one uh, was it the Levi's best trick contest? 
Do you know what I'm talking um, about? Where, the one in Vegas? Yeah, Edwards did the giant front flip over it. And there was like Bruno Lowe and Nicky Adams, Bergeron. Yeah. I, I want to say they were calling it 40. It might have been a bit longer. I don't know. Um, the angle was a bit different. It was like it was like way longer and floatier. You didn't get too high off the ground. Yeah, but I understand what you're saying where like I watched that old footage and crazy shit went down and people were willing to hit it. So it, it's like we think of yeah, this like, as like a John Bergeron, thing. John Bergeron throwing the throwing the forward seven. Yeah, and it's a like kind... not not cork, not not so he could spot the landing, throwing like a forward seven. Yeah, like the way Todd threw it out of the out of that park over the fence. Yeah, just a straight forward seven. Straight forward seven. If you don't have that rotation, you are dead. There's, there's no <laughs> there's no bail from that trick. Right, you're, you're hitting the ground so hard. I mean, John Bergeron kind of found a bail from it, but still, there is no bail from that trick. Anyway. I mean, there were some, there were some ASAs where the main box in the middle of the park course was forty feet. Yeah, I can and see. The, and the training on that thing was death. Like, I I love launch box, and I remember one ASA event I went to where I took a look at the box and I was like, uh, I think I'm, I think I'm gonna find something else to hit in my run. <laughs> <laughs> because it was death. You, I mean, you didn't even have. Like you didn't have a knuckle, you just had like a square edge. It was like jumping a, a spine, like a like a like a eight foot spine where they had just stretched the ramps like forty feet apart. It was death. And I mean dudes like Jaron and Feinberg were destroying it. So I don't think it's fair to pretend there's there's guys who couldn't have shown up and held their own and potentially done done more than what got done on the ramp. Did um but, uh, but oh, let me let me say one more thing about it being giganta because this is one thing that that really upset me when I was watching the event. The the bladers and the scooters were on the the airbag ramp, you know, like you could see every time they landed, it wasn't even like gym mats; they were literally landing on an airbag that had resi over it, right? And you know, might have been. It might have been 25, 30 feet to the knuckle. I don't know. Uh, it just didn't seem like these guys had the setup that they really could have taken it to the limit on. I mean, you've, you've seen Chris skate the Mega at West, so you know what he can do. You've seen Dave Lang skate the Mega at West. You know what they can do. And we're looking in the background, like literally just 10 feet behind, we're looking in the background at like a full-sized – plywood big air ramp for the skateboarders now why weren't we on that one like that that would be something that i'd be worried about more than the tv footage because what good is the tv footage when they're showing us on the kitty ramp on the practice ramp and then behind you like the skateboarders are on the real the real one i didn't even notice that the gap and I'm talking, I'm talking like to, to the apron here, like to the to the the platform. The gap looked twice as big. I'm not saying it was twice as big. I'm saying from where the people in the stands were sitting and from where people on TV were watching, it looked like the skateboarders were hitting a gap twice as big. And they were landing on real plywood. So it kind of takes the, you know, 
kind of takes the the air out of your bubble when you, you have to present yourself like that. Like you can't even land on on the real ramp. But those guys can, but you can't. I wonder. Um, it it almost seemed like the ramp design for the scooter and and rollerblading was more designed for a specific type of skating, like a more of a I don't know flip type. Like it was the ramp even different the way that the ramp led into. The launch, um, like it kicked you more up, and the skateboarding one kicked you more forward. I I want to say the short one, and I don't know if anyone actually hit that one. Nothing that I saw was of a blader hitting the short one. I want to say the short one looked like it was to the moon, like just straight up. Yeah. Um, and I can understand with the speed they had why they wouldn't have wanted to hit that one. Um. I mean. Let's talk for a second about the hardware these guys were on. Uh, I assume some, if not all of them, switched to the longest frame that their sponsor has and put the biggest wheels flat that they could on that frame. But we're still not talking about like 300, 330. We're not talking about the kind of frames that Leon's making now. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not talking about like really long frames. So you can only hit a transition so tight going so fast before it just doesn't work anymore. And that's probably one of our shortcomings in the event as a whole compared to the other, the other toys beneath our feet, so to speak, you know, compare the wheelbase of Chris's skates to the wheelbase of the guy that won the scooter contest to the guy that won the skateboard contest to the guy that won the motocross and the BMX contest guy might as well be riding a unicycle. You know, it's uh, it's just not going to work when you start going that fast and you start hitting transitions at that kind of speed with that kind of G-force. Quick question. How much longer is the wheelbase of a mega ramp skateboard to a traditional street skateboard? Uh, it, if you answer, don't know. An- okay, answer, I don't know. It can't be a whole lot. It's got to be like a few inches. Yeah whole lot i want to say they make the trucks a lot wider as well to try and like tame the tame the steering geometry a little bit what they should be changing is the kingpin angle i'm not sure if they're doing that or not i'm not sure they're the 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 longboarding community has definitely messed with the steering geometry of the trucks i don't know if the mega ramp guys have done that yet but Jacob, longboarding isn't isn't skateboarding. It doesn't count. So the hardware doesn't count. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Sorry, my 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 knowledge of skateboarding is very dated. So I can I can I have some idea of what went down in the eighties and the nineties. Since then, not really. Um, and then the base of a scooter is 900 millimeters? Uh, gee, I don't know. I, I mean, I imagine a guy can fit both feet facing forward on a scooter and neither of them are on the wheels yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, and... They're... So it's got, like, it's got to be, what, two and a half feet, maybe three? And it's getting... Their bases are wider, too, what they can stand on. It's gotten a lot wider. Nice. If you've seen that, they're almost doing like soul grind kind of tricks. I don't know if you've seen that. 
Uh, yeah. Like down kinkers because the base has, yeah, the width has gotten wider. So it is interesting to think that we're, we're pretty much on the same technology. Not only that, but like I made the joke about uh, people are probably riding with like an inch or a centimeter of plastic between their boot and the frame as well <laughs> is like well, I, yeah, I, I mean <laughs> it's not i mean the, the scooters like let's 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 just think for a minute about their hardware i know that there's probably the stereotyped idea that scooter hardware is kind of chintzy no you know no. it's the kind of thing you could buy in walmart and that may have been true in the very beginning right but it's such a big community and a big industry that they have now they've taken full charge of it the way that we should have a long time ago they've taken full charge of you know how big should the head tube be like how strong should the gusset be between the head tube and the what do they call it the deck or the platform right how wide should our wheels be do we need bigger axles um what if we made this part one piece and welded it together rather than making it adjustable They've gone through all of this and they've done it. And I think that's what made it possible for the guy, Ryan, Ryan Williams, to be able to cross over from scootering to BMXing and win the event. That was the most badass thing. <laughs> that was the most badass thing that he went out there and just cleaned up BMX. And the way that he's throwing that BMX bike around on the ramp, uh, it's mind blowing. And I mean, BMXing has come, like, I'm sorry if I'm using the wrong term for it. The freestyle bike riders have come so far in, let's say, the last 10 years. You know, I mean, before Dave Mira passed away, he was talking about, you know, potentially coming back. And I think some of his, you know, close friends and close associates from riding kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, um, we'd love you to do that, but it's not going to be easy for you to win because the kids are actually destroying what's possible on BMX these days. And it looks to me like this guy, Ryan Williams, is destroying it at a whole nother level to them. The three clips I saw of him to win this Nitro event, it, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. He was throwing the thing around like it was a scooter. And you'll never guess some of the comments that I read. <laughs> from BMXers about Ryan Williams winning the BMX event. If it's if it's all butthurt, I don't even want to know. It just doesn't <laughs> matter. You know what I mean? It's amazing though that it's that 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 people just won't give it up. Still, give up the props. Like people that don't count him as a BMXer when he just won the event. I think Sean White might have had to deal with a similar thing in skateboarding. Um, you know, I think they weren't. I think they weren't too happy that he crossed over from snowboarding and just kind of went to work and started making the finals and that kind of stuff. It maybe it maybe let a lot of pro skateboarders know that like it was time for them to you know to call it quits. I don't know. Okay, if a skier cleaned up in Nitro World Games, if it still existed in 2019 or 2018, and was on longer frames with no sole plates, big wide wheels, and just fucking cleaned up. <laughs> Wouldn't the same thing happen to him? Well, well, yeah, that, that, that's the question. 
Or would it? I don't know. Who is it? Who is it that's trying to maintain a stranglehold on what this event is and could be, even though they apparently didn't give a fuck about it in the late nineties? Um, and should they be doing that? Right, because that would be my question. I mean, it's obvious when you watch the event that that the way Roman is skating is pretty heavily influenced by what skiers are doing and the kind of training that skiers are doing, right? And the tricks that he put down on that ramp, you know, it was pretty cool to see that. Um, I was stoked to see him do dub 10 and dub 12 on the little mega ramp that's out at Woodward East because you probably wouldn't see skiers unless they were really, really on their game trying to throw a dub 10 or a dub 12 off a jump like that on snow. He really wasn't in the air for very long. He really didn't get a chance to spot it for very long. Didn't have any trouble putting it down on that tiny wheelbase and rolling away. I was really impressed. Um, but I would still suggest that if you were to put skiers on some kind of wheeled setup and throw them down that nitro ramp, you'd see some pretty incredible stuff. Did you see that post? As far as, as far as as far as flip to win and spin to win is concerned, the skiers have taken it ten times further than what the bladers are doing on on that ramp at this time. And it's a. Uh, but, but hold on, hold okay. on a second. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you say what you had to say, and then we're going to try and move this into the constructive part of the of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> oh, you, you were going to say it. something. Okay, I will say it. Um, it's almost like the uh, the the way it turned out and the way it's going to be packaged for television and the current hardware, the way it all happened, it's good because it creates a discussion about all this stuff. And, and I don't know, not that it was supposed to happen this way, but definitely next year or the year after i'm sure people will be open to hardware discussions and unless i'm crazy but well i i hope so and this is this is what i wanted from the event first time around because i've known about this event I, i've known that it was coming down the pipe for like six months so it's very frustrating how closed it has been and how much this kind of elite clique have kept it to themselves when it could be so much more if they would just open it up and invite people into it. It could be so much more if this very small group of Southern Californians didn't think that, like, it was theirs to own and it was theirs to rule and, and keep to themselves, you know? So moving forward, here are my ideas on how it could be done more constructively and done better. Before we get uh, before we get started on them, there's going to need to be some disclaimers, though. Okay. I have spent the last six months doing what I can to contact the right people or the people that I that I knew were involved and discuss with them all of these things to be incorporated into the first event, the event that just went down. So please don't think that this is a bunch of bitching and moaning after the fact. I'm not trying to quarterback the whole thing on Monday. All of these were things that I would have loved to have happened prior to the event going down, and I was trying to discuss this 
with the people that I knew were involved. Having said that, in hindsight, most of the people that were involved, I didn't even know. There was no statement made based on who was going to be judging, who was going to be organizing, who was going to be involved. All of that came down to the wire. None of that was public knowledge or knowledge that was available to a person like me six months ago, three months ago, one month ago. Um, Chris was one of those people. So it's very important for you to understand, anyone listening, that I wanted to speak with Chris directly about all of these things. And I'm still happy to speak with him directly about any or all of these things. I'm not the one putting the brakes on that. Right? I don't have a phone number. I don't have an email address. There are friends of friends who either didn't pass on that I was trying to get in touch with him or passed it on and he decided not to. I understand that he's not the kind of guy that you can send a Facebook message to because there's like a bajillion people and a bajillion messages every day. But without knowing him personally and without having like his number in my phone, I did all I could to speak with him directly. It didn't come together. So with those things said, um, I don't think Chris should have been in the event. You know, we know Travis Pastrana is involved with uh, Nitro Circus, so he's not in the event. Um, we know Chris has been involved with Nitro Circus for like five years. Apart from Wake, who's uh, been part of it, you know, recently, no one else has had the opportunity to skate that ramp and to skate that setup on the regular basis that you have. So no one can really compete with you, with Chris, on a level footing, given that none of them have that kind of time on the ramp, that kind of experience with the ramp. And I'll use CJ as an example here because um, – so CJ's in Sydney. He gets to hit the, the setup inside, you know, some Sydney arena one time. They ask him if he thinks he's got it. They ask him if he wants to do it. He says, yeah, okay. There's really nowhere in Australia that he could be practicing this style of skating. Um, I want to say there's an indoor park in Melbourne that has like a little, a little mega setup. Um, there's a guy that built one somewhere in like rural Victoria. It can't be too far from Melbourne, but there's a guy that built one in rural Victoria whether or not CJ would have the chance to skate it, whether it was even in a good enough condition to skate, I don't know. The point I'm trying to make is CJ lives in Sydney. He has a normal job that he has to work most of the time. Um, it's not like he had the ability to train for the event in any way. Added to that, he leaves Sydney in the middle of winter. He gets on a plane for like 14 hours minimum to Salt Lake, it was probably even more. It was probably closer to like 17 or 20 or something. He gets off the plane. It's 100 degrees outside. It's been 100 degrees outside like for a month or six weeks. Hasn't really skated the setup to try any of the tricks that he's going to need to be able to do in the event. In practice, like in practice, the day before, guy learns dub road nine, cork 12. 
And, you know, we're probably looking at Instagram clips of like the first time that he threw these or like, you know, the third attempt or something like that. Guy learned them one day, has to throw them down in the main event the next day. I just don't think it's reasonable to present the event as a legitimate contest and to have these guys competing against Chris and to crown Chris the winner. Now, we've all seen, like, we've all seen what the guy can do. You know, we, we've all seen the mega ramp edit. We've, we've all seen what you can do. Surely, at least as far as Nitro is concerned, you're at a point where you could step out of that role and let one of these other guys step up into that role if they're ready for it and if they're willing and able. And that's one thing I really liked about Erod's edit is that he had that little clip of, uh, of Dave Lang on the mic on camera. Because we all know Dave's that guy. Like, we all know Dave's willing to stand up straight, smile, look the camera in the eye and say, hi, this is who I am. This is what we do. Let me tell you a bit about it. And then check out some of the highlights. And it's just, it's a role that Chris has never really played. He's never really wanted it. He's never wanted to be, to be the face, to be the spokesman, to be the talking head for rollerblading. Okay, so in a situation like this, step down, let someone else step up if they're, if they're ready for it. It's a uh, <clears throat> god damn. There's so many uh, layers to this. <laughs> um, I mean, Wake's another example of this. I, I don't know where he was during the shows, but um, you probably saw that clip from like a few days ago or a week ago. He was doing one of the Nitro Circus shows somewhere, and he had to do the the Bubble Boy thing where you jump into the you jump into the hole in the bubble. Yeah. And, um, you know, little miscalculation. It wasn't like, wasn't like he lost all control or anything. Slight miscalculation, right? Maybe a little more speed, maybe whatever, who cares? It's something that could happen to anyone any day of the week. But he came down really hard. Like he, he, he could have broke his neck and not walked away from how hard he came down, even on gym mats. Because he got his feet caught in it, and it kind of slingshotted him back into the into the the ramp, like head first, you know, neck first, kind of thing. I mean, it's it's been five years that Chris has been working with this guy with these guys. Are we not at a point yet where you can go and meet the main dude in his office and say, "Look, I really don't think it's a good idea that we keep doing the shopping cart stuff, that we keep doing the bubble boy stuff." You know, let us do our let us do our real tricks. Let us show you what we've got. I mean, I understand that there's a bit of melodrama in the Nitro Circus show. You know, they don't they don't make it just straight up tricks. There's a little bit of uh, comic stuff in it as well. But I mean, that's some seriously dangerous stuff, man. What if you land on that cart? So. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's great they gave Wake the opportunity and he's doing shows as well. And, I mean, he's definitely got what it takes moving forward to, you know, to be there and to make to make the most of it. He's he's the guy. I get that. So why have him why have him risking it doing stuff like that? 
And that's, that's the bigger point about Chris. Like you're, you're in a position now where if we need someone to go to bat for us on these things, you know, not having qualifiers, not having, not being on the same ramp, not being on the, the, the real ramp, the plywood ramp, having to jump into the bubble and, you know, jump into the shopping cart. If there's any guy whose job it is to go to them and say, look, it, it, it shouldn't, like, we can do better than this. It really shouldn't be this way. Then he's that guy. You know? Oh, it's it's so hard. Like, like, Arlo, Arlo had that role in, like, whenever it was, 2000, 2001. Arlo had that role in the meeting with the X Games dudes. Right? He was the guy. When they stood up and said, you know, we're going to cut rollerblading from the TV and we're going to have Todd Grossman rolling around on the on the course following everyone on rollerblades to film them. Actually, I shouldn't say that. It might not have been Todd Grossman at that time. I don't know. It was Arlo's job to stand up and say, look, this is not, this is not cool. This is not the way it should go down. The, the community that stands behind me deserves better than this. And we can show you that we're worth it. Give us the shot. Right? Let us, let us show you that we can do more and that we can do better than we've done in the past. Let us show you that we belong here on the same stage as these guys. And don't get me wrong. I totally agree that we're the ones that have to do that work. I'm not saying it was Arlo's job or Chris's job to make us better than we are. That's our job. We need to do that as a community, as a whole. But when it comes down to how the actual deal goes down, they're the guy. They're the one there. I wouldn't even have been allowed on property to front up in front of Mike and in front of Travis and say this. We, we are worth more than this. Give us the opportunity, like you said you would, and let us show you that we're worth more than this. It, it's almost like... No one else. There's no one else in position to be the guy make that call to stand up and say that and to make that deal. And I mean, they love Chris. Look at, look at what he's done. I don't mean to, I don't mean to play down what he's been doing for the last five years. Look at what he's done for the last five years. It's amazing. Right. He basically stepped away from being the leader and the, the champion of our community and of our, uh, activity he stepped away from that, stopped putting out street edits because he wasn't in a position to do it, stopped playing a really active role in the community because he didn't have the time to do it anymore. But look what he is doing. He's spending that time and putting in that work and that energy to create an opportunity like this, this thing that just went down in Salt Lake. I mean, we all know that it was all him. Yeah. All, it was all his work that made that possible, and it took five years. And and it, he released an amazing street part, too. But it was VOD, so uh, it's too bad not more people can't see it. <laughs> you calling me cheap? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pointing out that he still did a legendary street part in that oh, time, too. Okay. I'll take back what I said then. He still had time to put out a legendary street part that I'm too cheap to pay for. <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said it was VOD, so people... No, I, there's probably a ton of people who haven't seen it, which is too bad. But you're right. He That's amazing. 
I hadn't actually thought of um, it being a five-year run up to this point. But that's also why he did have to be in it, though. Because he, I don't know, not not that he would be a coach. It's that's not his thing. But he needed to. He was an important part of that energy with those other guys. Like not him and Wake. Obviously, Wake was already used to it. But for those three other guys, I think for him to be in that session, that first one was really important. So I can imagine him possibly having more pull. And I also like to be that person to talk to your boss. Fuck, that's a hard thing to do. I can't. I. It takes a really specific type of person to go up. Okay, but that's the job. Like, you know that I'm not of the opinion that one person, any one person, is going to quote unquote save rollerblading. Exactly. I know that we as a whole have to get the job done, have to do the work. Having said that, we're still operating in a world and in a community that has that idea. Okay, they think of it that way. They, they think that Tony Hawk is the one that put skateboarding on the map. They don't realize that it was the work of like millions of people worldwide with a common goal and a common vision and all that kind of stuff, right? And you need that movement. You need that millions of people movement in order for there to be a need to push one guy up into the spotlight and to say, this is our boy, right? And that's kind of my point. This is like what I said to you in the interview, about what Chris was doing with the with the blade edits on his website. All right? That's kind of the point. There aren't enough people, there isn't enough energy behind skating at this time for us to raise one guy up and have the world embrace him as being the guy that saved rollerblading. It's just not there. Right? That's a really good point. Now, now Chris is what, 30 something now? Uh maybe just 30 possibly. I'm not suggesting that there's a certain age at which rollerbladers should quit or can't be pro anymore or whatever. I mean, even even Richie Velasquez proved that wrong forever ago. But um, there probably is a certain age where you're not inspiring the youth anymore. You're not inspiring the people who could potentially start skating to become skaters anymore. Like, if, if there are kids out there who are picking up rollerblading today, 2016, how old are they? They're probably like 11 or 13, maybe younger. Uh, I don't even know who's picking Chris up rollerblading. Enough, Chris is old enough to be their dad, you know? And he's never really presented himself according to whatever was trendy at the time, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like Chris, Chris has always been above needing to maintain whatever the trends were, you know, that, that the kids were into. So, like, what what 11-year-old is going to see Chris and be inspired and start skating? And yet he's in a perfect position to be that guy who steps into the role of, I don't want to say managing, but at least kind of being the coach or being the mentor of the Nitro event. Because he's got more experience on that setup than anyone in front of the biggest crowds ever. And I. Yes. Did, 
did he throw anything that we haven't seen before at the event? Uh, I haven't seen all the footage yet. Okay. I think if he threw something fakey, then possibly. Well, he's had... Uh, uh, what has he had for a while where he would come down, where he would come down switch? He did like this... Almost like the switch double flat spin, didn't he? And he also in the in the movie he did that in that action figures movie. I was so stoked to see a happy uh, piece of footage, and he did that. It was almost like a giant cork mute seven twenty thing. That he comes um, down backwards for. No, in in the movie he did it. It was the one in the I'm, movie I'm, was. I'm trying the, to I'm trying to picture what he does when he comes down fake. I wonder if he just did a really could have been a nice zero spin, but I imagine it being like a f, like a fakey double bio cork thingy that he could have done. Because you think of like if I was Roman or CJ, I, I'm never gonna hit that ramp. But like <laughs> learning to roll that thing fakey is a trick in itself, <laughs> and I, he probably knows how to do it. So I mean that could have been one of the winning tricks because the E rod edit was just it didn't have everything. I, I had someone say to me that he was the only guy out of the five that came down switch, but uh, I can't I can't picture what he would have done. But the, the bigger question was, did he do anything on the day that we haven't seen before? Um, probably not. And and he, it was insane, like um, seeing that uh, the two CJ tricks, seeing him learn a double flat spin. And that 1260, which he finished his rotation so early and he was still so high up. <laughs> I had in my head, like, what the fuck is going to go down the next day? And then um, seeing in my head what Roman was practicing with, I thought for sure he was going to try and throw a triple. I sound like such a nerd right now. but um, And then Lang... I, I, I would have liked to have seen it. He was, he was throwing the dubs real lazy. Yeah. Real easy. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it was. It looks like he was struggling for speed a little bit. It was crazy. He took a little stride, like at the bottom, like it was almost like yeah, something was it, absorbing uh, speed in his I mean, skates. Like what you were saying about CJ's Cork Twelve, it was obvious he wasn't struggling for speed. No, <laughs> that dude took it deep, right? But um, I, I mean, it might partially be the trick as well when you're when you're doing those tricks that Roman was trying. You're kind of leaning back, yeah, and throwing back. So it's different to throwing like a bio five, where you can kind of send it for distance, you know. And guys that were doing like misties and then like a backflip on the way out, you can you can send that for distance. You don't have any trouble making the distance, but it, it looked like Roman was struggling for speed. Like if he had more speed and was landing further down, maybe more would have come of it. But whatever. Yeah, that's a well. There, that's a hardware thing because um, I don't know what frame CJ would have been in, but I am I'm pretty sure Go Project posted that he was in 65 millimeter wheels. Um, and I've skated. I really don't like the feel of the sole plates on the Seba, but the carbon does help for uh, rigidity and speed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just that that boot construction, like 
you know, a metal wizard frame attached to that carbon boot is insane for yeah. power, power transfer must be sick. Yeah. So I, I almost <laughs> wondered like if CJ, like maybe he took his soul plates off and just put the frame right on the boot. I would be interested to, to know if he did that, you know, that there'd be no reason to have plastic between your frame and, and the carbon boot. Yeah. So anyways, well, I imagine they all tweaked their setups a little bit to make it work better. But, yeah. I mean, it's still all pretty much stock hardware. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all stuff their sponsors are making. So, it, And it's all brand new territory as well. Like, um, I, even myself, some of the hardware conclusions that I'm coming to, I mean, I'm 34 years old. It took me a long time to get to this point and smarter people <laughs> like you and Frank and Leon to kind of plant seeds in my head that you guys have known all along. So, I mean, it's, it's a slower game for some reason. I don't, it's just some of these things take time. Like I can imagine there being new hardware standards, but if I was a nerd trying all different kinds of setups and it took me this long to get to some of the conclusions, whether they're right or wrong, there's always still tweaking. But I mean, Frank was on long rockered frames. How long ago? Uh, well, I remember I remember him getting a pair of the the biggest metrics that I made, and they didn't have rockers in them. But he was just going to run different, you know, bigger wheels in the middle kind of thing. But I mean, he's been running rocker forever because he came out of hockey. So, and then like like Tom Tom Fry was skating rocker way back. And I think Tom Fry was an influence of Frank's. I think he was inspired to some degree by Tom Fry, but also like by Tim Ward and some other guys. But him coming out of hockey, it just didn't make sense to him to switch until he needed it. And he never needed it. And he preferred Rocker. So he just wrote it out, you know, and then killed you, it, killed it on Rocker. And yeah, I'm from hockey if you, as if well. You, if you've never seen Frank Stoner footage, you need to go find some. Oh, there's some Woodward stuff. I can't remember what it was there's, in. But. There's clips here and there in the Woodward videos. Um, <laughs> I want to say, I want to say there's maybe a, a couple or a few sections in like Lonnie's old videos. Um, Might have got some clips or a section in Jan's old videos as well, like when they were still in Austin. But some of the stuff I've seen, yeah, it was. It wasn't like it, it wasn't like Rocker ever held him back when everyone else was skating anti. Uh, Can you hear that? Yeah, is that at your place or mine? It's our It's our tenants downstairs, their cars doing it. We'll just try and talk through. <laughs> oh they got it. Um, yeah, well even one one bigger point that I wanted to make though on the end of that uh, uh, happy not being in the event thing. When I, when I used to uh, skate the ASA contests, like the amateur contests, um, they, would, they would hold the AM events on the same course that the pros were on. So you would, you would be out skating like an ASA AM on the same ramps with, uh, with all the ASA pro guys, or at least like in the practice and in the warm-up and stuff like that. And it's really hard to describe to people skating today the kind of energy and the kind of juice that you would get out of those sessions where it was just the most insane ramp in front of you 
and everyone in the event was feeling it and everyone started skating at a level that was over their head if they had just been on that course alone. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like everyone was just feeding off each other and the, the level just kept going up and up and up and you were part of this and you were skating at a better level than you could without all of these people there as well. And in my mind, that's the real spirit of competition, right? The reason you get this group of guys together and you put a big purse, a big, a big cash prize up is that you're trying to create an atmosphere and an environment where they can all push each other and push themselves way beyond the same level that they would be at if you were just watching one of these guys, you know, session their home park or whatever. And it just seemed to me like there was a really weird dynamic at this event where the, the idea was that Chris had picked the guys for the event and it seemed like the, you know, the judging panel was from pretty close to home as well. And it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to get first. It almost didn't matter what tricks other people did. It was a foregone conclusion because that's the one, he's the one that people wanted to see get first, like it was going to save us or something. And I just felt like it wasn't, the real spirit of competition wasn't there and that these guys weren't really pushing themselves as hard as they could or there weren't the right people there for there to be that kind of competitive vibe, you know? Yeah. I guess it's been a long time since rollerbladers have really dealt with that. And like it's been, it's been a long time since the pro class has shown up at, a, at an event where like they weren't cool with everyone who was there and they weren't homies with everyone who was there and everyone kind of knew what everyone else was going to do, you know, when, when, when the hammer dropped, when the pressure was on. And so it's just this really chill thing where there's no like tension. Doesn't it feel there's, there's no, there's no drama. There's no not knowing who's going to throw what. And that was the best part of it. Like I'll go on and on for hours about watching Sean Robertson skate and not knowing what he was going to throw. I think we've spoke about this before. There was one of these ASA events where uh, the dudes come out to skate the finals and uh, Feinberg's in the finals and Sean Robertson's in the finals. And Feinberg puts down his first run and he gets like a 97 or something. Like just flawless, amazingly powerful and technical run that Aaron Feinberg puts down. He gets like a 97. So he gets back up to the, you know, to the tent, to the little staging area where all the pros are hanging out. And he takes his skates off and he puts them in his backpack and he puts his shoes on. So he's basically telling all the other dudes, like, I don't even need a second run. You guys aren't going to, you guys aren't going to beat that. I, I don't even need a second run. And Sean Robertson came out, just eye of the tiger, bro. And it, he went berserk on that course. And I've never seen anything like it. And it doesn't matter to me that it wasn't a picture-perfect run that Sean did. It doesn't matter to me that, oh, you know, he didn't land this trick perfect or he could have done that over there. Because some of the things that got done in that run are the most insane things I've ever seen on skates. And it got done because of that tension and because of that kind of competitive vibe. And it just didn't really seem to be in this event, you know, that just went down. 
like you said, it was kind of like a like a showcase, like a demo. Yeah, and isn't that somewhat fitting? Like, let's just say there is a second year. This first year feels like a, um, a foot in the door, um, like a yeah, like a showcase or a, and and even the way that they did the tricks, they probably wanted to land their tricks. They didn't. If they would have used all their attempts and everybody fell, like it wouldn't have been a good show. If they would have gone all out probably the resi looked like it was it was hard to land on like we didn't see all of the falls i'm sure that resi was awkward as fuck to land on don't don't get me wrong there i'm not saying that that they're pussies for not skating the plywood um i just wanted to see the event go down on the plywood because it sets a bad it sets a bad precedent if the crowd can look at the two events side by side and be like, oh, look, the skateboarders are real men and the the scooter riders and the bladers are just landing on a giant slippery slide, a giant airbag. But but don't get me wrong, it would have been harder to land on the resi. And, dude, like I said, it was 100 degrees. That right? resi would have, have been you, soft. Have you, have you ever fallen and slid on resi outdoors when it's really hot? No. All those dudes are wearing, like, white long sleeves and stuff. I don't blame them, right? I get it. You would have got, like, third-degree burns on your on your arms and on your whatever <laughs> if, if you had had to slide down that thing. Yeah. But, but, again, whose job is it to take care of that? Like, if you have a problem with the setup, you go, you go to the, you know, whoever's managing your event or whoever's running the show, you go to them and you're like, we've got to change this. I wonder if it's an insurance We've got to change this. We've got to be the guys landing on the plywood. We can't do it on the resi because if we fall, we're going to like burst into flames, you know. (laughs) um, It's it's someone's job to make it that way, (laughs) to to take care of all that stuff, right? Because it looked like it was pretty well taken care of in the other events. That's kind of the point I'm making. It looks like someone on the skateboarding side went to bat for them and maybe even said all this stuff. Like no, we're not landing on resi. We're bringing in like a like a full sized, you know, whatever it's called. Um, Skate light? No. You know how they have like standards, like for how high a basketball hoop should be and stuff oh, like that. Regulation. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. We want like a full sized regulation big air ramp. The same thing we've been hitting in all these events for like you know the last five or six or eight years or whatever. Um, someone obviously asked for that. Oh, and by the way, we don't want the scooters and the and the rollerbladers on our ramp. Someone probably asked for that, you know? Yeah, I didn't even uh, realize that they're on different ramps until you pointed it out. And it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that, that Mike and Travis would be the proponents of. It sounds like they want the level playing field. So why wouldn't they listen to someone going to them saying, hey, look, we need to be on the same ramp. We need to be on the real ramp. Because this resi thing is going to make us look like amateurs, and it's actually not even helping. Like we've got we've got our tricks. We're good. I wonder if it's like a weird insurance thing or um... <laughs> insurance. <laughs> yeah, I know. You haven't seen you haven't seen much of the Nitro Circus stuff, have you? <laughs> um, Any anyone insuring them would have gone out of business like forever ago. <laughs> A point that I was thinking of was 
um, the original vision months back of open qualifiers. Uh, you don't have to be a big name. It, 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 they, they maybe some of these mark, these claims like were big. And then as they got closer to the event, they kind of had to like, uh, reframe the event a little bit, even like getting Tony Hawk in there last minute. Who knows if that was somebody at NBC or, you know, like it was the first one. There was just so many little moving pieces to have a good event. And, and I just think the, well, yeah, but it got done for the other events. Yeah, like, this was my BMX, other question. The BMX dudes, the BMX dudes had their qualifier. Scooter did uh, too, I think. The, the skateboarding dudes either had a qualifier, or they have some association that knows who to put up and who not, based on you know some real world measurable stuff, contest results, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. Yeah. I, I'm I'm assuming that maybe maybe Nitro's just got their crew that they want to do it. I don't know. Um, did Scooter have a qualifier? Uh, not that I know, but I don't know. That would be interesting if they did, and and rollerblading was the only one that that didn't. Like, um, and it was let's go, really let's go back to the TV thing. I I understand that. Like I, I perfectly understand NBC saying, "Look, our sponsors, they're not willing to pay for a thirty second commercial during the rollerblading. They're not." Right, we we can't sell that airtime. We can't sell that bit. So if you need to trim the broadcast a bit, that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the spots that don't have any advertising dollars behind them. That's not part of some huge conspiracy to like hold down rollerblading. I yeah. get that. But with the skateboarding, with the with the the plywood ramp thing, it's right there. They were probably walking up the same staircase and like turning right instead of turning left. It wasn't like there was another event going down on that ramp at the same time. It doesn't seem like it would have been that big a stretch to be like, why are you putting us on the kitty ramp? With yeah, the but, airbag? Yeah. Why can't we, why can't we do it on the men's ramp? Do and I get think- the impression that, that Mike and Travis would have been on the same page. They would have been like, yes, we understand that we're trying to put on the best show we can. It's not appropriate for us to have you on the little ramp. If you guys are all ready to take your stuff to the big ramp. Do you think it would have, changed the the show or, or the uh for me it would have do you for think the, for the average fan though i mean these are things that they probably talk about i mean they're probably like why not make it safe no, because it sounds like it sounds like that was out of out of nitro's hands oh that that it that, would have been like at the end of the day that's who we have to answer to if we want to be on tv we have to answer to the general public yeah They're the ones who either want to see it or don't. And if they don't, you know, the advertisers and NBC are going to be very well aware of that. So I was really surprised. It's 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 our responsibility. It's our job to bring what we've got to the level where it does need to be on TV, where people are seeing something that they've never seen before and didn't even imagine was possible on a pair of skates. Which is what happened, but I think, yeah, I think I understand what you're saying is that it, it can be even more so. And do you think there will be, I, I, I swear there's just going to be a next year and this was just kind of like the beginning kind of test run showcase thing and it will probably lead, mm-hmm. whether it gets televised or not next year, it doesn't matter, but at least the event will grow. 
don't you think? Uh, well, there, there's the, the way I'll answer that is pretty much the last thing that I have to say on uh, on the event or on the subject in general, and that is when when you hear from industry types in blading, like I listened to John Julio's podcast not long ago that he did with Crans, when when you hear from the industry leaders in blading, they really do seem a little bit lost and a little bit confused as to how it is that we're actually going to get young people doing this again. Um, there might be something here that we're not really considering that, uh, that I'd like to bring up, and maybe it'll make a difference as far as whether or not we have a future in, uh, in the Nitro uh, events. When you look at the sports that are, when you look at the activities that are big time in these Nitro events, they all have a history that goes back further than what rollerblading does. And it goes back to a time when America was a different place. You know, it's a little, it's a little bit more of a golden area, a golden era back in like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s in American history. And when you get into like the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, people aren't really looking at it as a golden era in the same way. So there's really nothing we can do to change that. We, we can't get in a time machine and take rollerblading's inception back to, you know, the 60s or the 70s. And so there's a certain generation that have totally, totally missed out on it being an activity that, could be seen at the same level or in the same league as these other activities. Um, I'd go as far as saying the same thing for snowboarding. You know, I mean, I've been I've been living in ski towns and kind of learning a lot about ski culture and ski uh, history over the last few years. And you know, a lot of people are struggling to come up with answers as to why skiing is surging ahead and snowboarding is really not. And it maybe has something to do with the same thing, that when you look at a certain generation of people, they're old enough that they're never going to get over the idea that snowboarding is a bunch of punk kids that break the rules. They're never going to see it any other way. So maybe snowboarding doesn't have the potential to get to that level because it just wasn't around in that time period. And maybe the same thing applies to scooters and to rollerblades where it really doesn't matter how popular they are because it doesn't seem like scootering has any problem with popularity at the moment. Um, it doesn't matter because to that older generation that hold you know, a certain power or a certain influence, if not over the industry, then over their kids and over their grandkids that are picking this stuff up, they're just not going to encourage them to be on a scooter. They're going to encourage them to be on a surfboard, a skateboard, a bicycle, a motocross bike, um, and maybe more times just not going to change that. I don't know. So then, what if it is such? So it feels like a like a more open time in skating, and saying like not everybody knows how to get new kids in into skates. But isn't there just a energy? that could bubble up 
behind. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about a generation that used to be into it that are kind of getting back into it. You know, earlier in the podcast, you were talking about guys getting back in who are maybe late 20s, early 30s already, you yeah. know, and they are influenced by things like Chris skating in an event like this. They are influenced to get back in and to do it again. Um, and I think that's probably where the motivation's coming from to to experiment with different setups and different hardware and such, you know, because these are guys who they don't need to get sold on the on the action, the activity of being a skater, because they were sold on that back in the nineties, and they don't care about the image. You know, it's not they don't care that it's not cool because they're past that point in their life anyway. So they're they're probably the ones that are showing you know renewed interest in doing it. It's certainly I mean what I was talking about you know waking up and turning the computer on and seeing what's you know what's on the internet today as far as you know new edits and new clips and new things going on they don't seem like a really young crowd no and i know there was a mentality back then in the 90s that our bodies wouldn't be able to handle doing this beyond you know 21 25 whatever that's obviously not true these days people are just doing it differently you know there's less there's less power, there's less aggression, and there's more control. So dudes are probably getting injured a lot less. So then uh, you talked are about... They, are they, are they going to pass it on to their kids, and is that going to be enough? <laughs> that... <laughs> you, you already know my position. My position is that it's not going to quote-unquote come back the same way that it was way back then no it needs it needs to change and that that change will make it something new and that's what will put it back on the map but it won't be the same as it was and bladers need to be open to the idea of it being something other than what it's already been in order for it to come back in any way because everyone's seen it before they know it they've tried it you know yeah. So I, I think it needs to come from the hardware first. I completely agree with you. and uh, uh, But you'd be surprised at how... how uh, it's, it's crazy to think of um, that actually happening. In my mind, takes so much longer. Am I crazy to think that that's going to take longer than we think it would take? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw uh, on Reddit the other day, I saw a really good uh, quote, you know, you know, like one of those quotes they put on top of like a pretty picture. Yeah. People that can't read good. Um, and it was from uh, Henry Ford. So, you know, the father of the Model T, basically credited as being the father of the Industrial Revolution. And he said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses Yep. And that's something that's been kind of the the driving force in our industry for a while is these quote-unquote industry leaders are asking themselves, what do the kids want? And when we can find out what the kids want, we'll give it to them, all right? And if you ask the kids what they want, they're, they're going to tell you that they want it in red and that they want it in purple and that they want something that's like 
half a ground control frame and half a create original frame. But they can't explain to you in any kind of detail what that is. They they don't know. They don't know. So if you're if you're taking lead from your market research or whatever, if you're letting the kids determine what it is that they want, you're never going to end up with the Model T. You're just going to end up with faster horses. Well, I don't even think there but, is any. But how do you even do that? <laughs> how, how do you even do that? Right? Oh, we we want better wheels. Oh, okay, but it still needs to be a fifty-nine, and it still needs to be like what four dollars, six dollars on the shelf. <laughs> That's where though. I, right? this... We need them to be faster, but we're not willing to pay more, and they can't be bigger. <laughs> That, that's where this, to bring it back to the idea of that this is the most exciting time, this is the most open it's been to that idea. Yeah. yeah. Since the beginning, in my mind. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, look at, look at the grooves that are coming out on these frames today. Look at the max wheel that's coming out on frames today. And I mean, when Andy's doing it, you you know it's hit the big time. <laughs> you, you know it's you know it's not a niche product when Andy's doing it. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that he was willing to technically make the frames not UFS. Like you need to get in there with a Dremel or a file or some sandpaper or something to actually make it work. Yeah, I'm I surprised. Uh, yeah, you got to take the nubs off. Is that what it is? And if, if they're working on a similar frame that has a smaller max wheel, I'm kind of surprised by that because he could probably step it up and, uh, you know, move the bolts. He's got a patent from way back that, uh, that he could really easy put into, like, Razor's sole frames and Rem's sole frames, you know. Where you move – where there's – what is it? Uh, trying to think of how to describe it. Yeah, you could basically adjust the location of the mounts. Oh, okay. Seba, um, the free so you skates kind of had like a nine positions. There you go. You could move back. them a little forwards. You could move them a little backwards. Yeah. Um, you could maybe move them closer together or further apart, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, if there's ever a time to do it, the best-selling aggressive skate isn't UFS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the blob <laughs> and uh and yeah it was I, I swear i swear it, it would be like something out of a simpsons episode if you could see the production line that they make that skate on <laughs> i swear like on the left there's like a production line for barbie dolls and on the right there's like a production line for plastic dog poo <laughs> and in the middle out comes the eon shells <laughs> the blob <laughs> i haven't thought of it like that you, um, it's it's just a reflection though of that openness. I mean, lots well, of people well, have no. They couldn't they couldn't sell Kaiser frames, so someone had the bright idea of well, let's just mold it to the boot and force people to buy them. Just force people to run Kaiser frames. But it's still at least. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I'm not going to say anything complimentary about Power Slide in the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
if someone out there skates the ons and they love them, more power to you. Well, no, the crazy thing is, it's like there's people hacking them and UFSing them and. Oh really? I, I haven't seen that. <laughs> that so like you're 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 way closer to the pulse of rollerblading than I am. I'm just not paying that much attention anymore. I'm just right? saying that like people are open to doing the wildest customs and trying so many bizarre things like it i I, no i agree with that i I haven't seen a pair of eons that are modded for for removable frames so okay you know how people were hacking up skateboard wheels and and using them as anti-rockers and i don't know what whatever the first grind plates were made out of yeah oh I, i i totally agree with that point that you're making that we are at a we are at a time right now where the, the do-it-yourself vibe is way higher than it's been, like you're saying, since the early 90s. Yeah, but there's more stuff to play with, There's there's and there's a wider spectrum, too. I, I, I can't imagine. Like, living living in a city where your Craigslist was just full of skates, or, like, your Play It Again was just full of skates, or you're on, like, eBay just buying one of everything and just hacksawing it up and bolting it together with other stuff. I can't, it would be the most amazing time because you'd be getting whole pairs of skates for like five bucks. Just to see, like, Joe Atkinson is murdering it on Solomon's right now. Yeah, that was nice, watching the NASA's. It It's just, there's like the Wild West, no rules of skate technology, almost. We just got a couple more pieces. I, I want to say most of that's probably coming from outside of Southern California. Uh, correct me. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, uh, probably. Yeah. We'll see what, what the Razors yeah. has something up their sleeve. Canada, you, you don't even need me to say it. Canada's so hot right now. <laughs> but, but I know a lot of stuff you post comes out of the UK as well. Yeah. So they're obviously on the same mentality, on the same vibe where they get it. Now is the time where we can do whatever we want with this. You know, we have the power, we have the means let's make it our own let's make it the way we want it to be and yeah you know that's a vibe that hasn't really been that popular in skating since what 93 yeah we're like on. 93 is when those guys all looked each other in the eye and were like we can make anything we want out of this and it's and they all had plans of i'm gonna run a magazine i'm gonna run a hardware company I'm going to go on tour and, uh, you know, show skaters in middle America what it's all about. And everyone just went their own way, you know, and made their own thing. Uh, Chris Edwards, Angie, Jess Darenforth, Chris Mitchell, Pat Parnell, Mark Shays, you know. Maybe some of these guys got some flack for, for not being core or not being real skaters or whatever if you go far enough back they were all real skaters man right they all loved it with a passion and they were all pushing it in their time i i, I know the definition of pushing it changed radically once chris Edwards got started but but you know in 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 his time mark shays was pushing it pat Parnell was pushing it those guys were doing things that Maybe half a dozen guys aren't anywhere in the world, you know. And it's happening now. It, it's uh, it's just 
another point is that we, we it almost feels like we're getting closer to all working together as a whole. We're almost there. <laughs> we are. It's, it's just like a little like, bit more to we go. We like San Diego, a telegram or something. <laughs> can we like can we like make postcards out of some of these pictures? Send it down that way. What pictures? What? Just want to show you. Just want to show you guys what rollerblading looks like outside the bubble. <laughs> the, but there is no bubble. We just haven't made the the bubble is open. The connections just haven't been made yet. That's what I. That's what Have I'm you feeling. Been to San Diego on skates. What's that? Have you been to San Diego on skates? No, no, I don't. I don't venture into the United States too much. I should. Like listen to my mom trying to tell me all about Donald Trump. I'm like, ah, oh, what country do you live? <laughs> um, I guess is that the end? Uh, yeah, it's getting late. Yeah. Is th- is there anything else? I that I mean, if there's people out there that don't hate me by now, there's really nothing else I can say to make it happen. So yeah, I guess we're done. I bet the end point was as positive as you can get. <laughs> no sense of humor still. Who, me? No, I'm talking about rollerblading in general. Oh, yeah. Well, that one's getting there, we, too. We better learn to laugh at ourselves, you know? Yeah. I think it was you that, told, that taught me that. Oh, yeah. Well, I asked the question once, if rollerblad- does rollerblading have a sense of humor? <laughs> I would say no, but we're getting there. <laughs> we're just like a. I've been I've been watching way too much uh, Bill Burr routines lately, so <laughs> it, it's probably coming across a little more uh, a little more evil than it should be. No, it's good. It's uh, it it always it's important to talk about this stuff and it's important to have different personalities and viewpoints that's why a podcast is great because who's gonna say it you know you know who's gonna say it bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're we're rambling now okay Ten, nine, eight. thank you for coming on the podcast three two one thank you joey fun was had thank you jacob Good night.